Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we're going to talk with Wayne State history professor Kadata Williams about her new book, I Saw Death Coming, which explores the unimaginable violence that formerly enslaved black Americans faced in the Reconstruction era and the ways that that trauma they faced set the table for the discrimination and violence that black America still struggles with today. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. More than 150 years ago, and for a short period of only about 14 years, America tried, in somewhat earnest, to fulfill the promises of liberty and opportunity for black Americans who had been enslaved. The Reconstruction era, which follows the Civil War, was about a push on many fronts for racial justice and true democracy. And yes, there were some important strides made during that era as African Americans began voting in larger numbers, began building on economic opportunity in their communities, and we even began holding public office. But that progress didn't come without really violent pushback. White Americans in the South and in the North organized around the idea that black progress was a threat to their place in this country. And many of them launched systematic violent attacks on freed African Americans and their allies. The story of Reconstruction the violent reaction to it and its ultimate failure has been told from many different perspectives, those of journalists, academics, and military officers. But many of those accounts frequently distort African-Americans' narratives or they remove us from the story entirely. There's been such little accounting of what happened to black bodies and black liberation struggles during that time. And our narratives, which are central to the story, are probably the least told. History professor Kadata Williams, who teaches and researches here at Wayne State University, recently wrote a book called I Saw Death Coming, a history of terror and survival in the war against Reconstruction. It explores Reconstruction firmly from the perspective of African-Americans, the people who really experienced it. And in meticulous, anguished detail, Williams demonstrates how traumatic the violence of that period was for black families and communities, 
people who were just trying to assert their rights. And in doing so, she paints a vivid picture of the foundations for the discrimination and violence that black Americans still face today. That's where we begin the conversation, with a look back at the Reconstruction era, but also a look at how it casts forward into 2023. I'm really pleased to welcome Professor Williams back to Detroit today. Kadada, it's great to have you here. Stephen, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And let me say right off the bat, uh, congratulations on the book. I've been reading it this week uh, since it came into the office, and it is a stunning account of what happened during that era. And as I said in the open, it really fronts the experiences that African-Americans that we had during that era and tells us everything about the things that we continue to struggle with today. A a little later in this conversation, uh, I'm going to want to talk to you specifically about the research that you did here and how you were able to, to put such detailed accounts together of things that happened not just a, a long time ago, but but happened uh, and then were, were buried by so many people. I mean, it's not, the, it's not easy to find the kind of information that you had. But, but I want to start uh, uh, w- with just talking a little about Reconstruction and the interest in Reconstruction. There is more interest, I think, right now uh, in, in writing about that era, trying to understand it. Uh, what draws you to that time period and, in particular, this angle, this idea of the violence that African Americans suffered? Well, I didn't start off interested in Reconstruction. Um, I think, like many of us, I either didn't learn anything about Reconstruction in school or I learned that it failed. So... That wasn't something that I was really interested um, in studying, but that failure narrative didn't really make sense to me um, because I couldn't really imagine that black people who fought their way out of slavery, um, who get all of these sort of rights and privileges and, and you know they're serving in office, they're doing all of these things, that they didn't make the most of freedom. So that story didn't really make sense to me. And so the more I studied it, the more I started looking at the actual records of the period, the more I realized what a truly transformative moment this was. You know, we get slavery destroyed. We get African-American families, black land owning, black office holding, black voting, black schools, black churches, all of these wonderful things that black people had been dreaming about for all of their time when they were in bondage. And so when freedom comes, they make the most of it. They seize it. They do everything they can. Um, so I can't just imagine that that was a failure. That didn't seem like failure to me. That seemed like success. And the more I started studying the history, the more I recognized not only what a truly transformative moment it was, but that all of that progress was overthrown um, by white Southerners who were determined to hold on to their privileges in the American system. And so for me, Reconstruction became this moment that, um, that, wouldn't, that sort of wouldn't let me rest. Like, I wanted to know more and more and more and more about the period, even as more historians were starting to study it and to rethink some of the older narratives they had told, which was that Reconstruction failed. And so getting into it, you know, we've got, you know, scholars like Eric Foner, who today called this the second founding, Mm -hmm. 
You know, so we've got a sort of movement in the historiography where people are understanding how truly transformative this moment was, but we're still dealing with this sort of larger narrative of failure that we've got to address. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we talk about the failure of of Reconstruction, I think we, we kind of have to do a little work for people in, in explaining what failed how it failed, who made that decision. Now, we are talking about the violence, of course, that that incites, um, you know, uh, the retreat, really, from from the idea of, of Reconstruction. But but talk about the, what was happening that um, the government was, was, you know, heavily involved in, in pushing that whites were reacting to. What was uh, Reconstruction? So Reconstruction is this larger process by which the um, United States tries to recover from the Civil War, how to return the seceded states back to the Union fold, and how to address the reality of slavery's destruction. So one of the things that you get on that front um, is the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which establishes that African Americans have the right to have rights. They have the right to citizenship. Um, And you get that reinforced with the 14th Amendment, which says that they have the right to or part of their right to citizens means that they are entitled to due process um, and equal protection under the law. Another part of Reconstruction um, is the 15th Amendment. It establishes that uh, African-American men have the right to vote. So you get all of these revolutionary reforms. Um, that white Southerners uh, don't necessarily like. And so, you know, this is part of their rising up against it. But when we talk about, you know, I think the challenge that we've got to deal with when we grapple with the failure narrative is acknowledging that the Constitution doesn't enforce itself. And what the federal government didn't do was enforce African-Americans' rights, which is, you know, they didn't take enough action to stop white Southerners from violating African-Americans' rights. And so there is this more complicated story about Reconstruction and its supposed failure. The story ex-Confederates told was that black people didn't make the most of freedom and that they had no choice. And so what they say is that black people failed at freedom. So that's what ex-Confederates mean when they talk about failure narrative. Um, And so they say, you know, black people failed at freedom. So we had no choice but to form groups like the Ku Klux Klan, to overthrow them and to establish Jim Crow. And so that was the story that they told. That was the other part of the lost cause narrative. So baked into the failure narrative is this understanding that black people failed to make the most of freedom. And professional historians, white professional historians, essentially retold that story. They regurgitated that story. And you've got people like black historians like W.E.B. Du Bois who said, no, that's not what happened. The failure that takes place is that the federal government fails to enforce black people's rights. Mm -hmm. And historians have since, you know, moved forward and acknowledged the federal government's failure. But when they talk about failure, they're not saying who failed to do what and why. They're just generally using the language of failure. And so people are filling in the gaps. And they're filling in the gaps with that sort of older narrative that black people fail to make the most of freedom, which is not what the records reveal. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the story I try to address in the book. It's a, it's a failure, really, of uh, the government to protect uh, this new freedom that African-Americans are uh, supposed to have uh, respected uh, in, in that era. I mean, um, it, it, it's a withdrawal, really, from uh, a, a pretty pretty important responsibility. Uh, I, I want to talk about the violence that African-Americans faced 
during Reconstruction. Uh, you know, terms like Ku Klux Klan are all familiar to us uh, as Americans, but the violence that you're writing about goes so far beyond something like that. I mean, this was very routine um, terrorism, really, uh, that was uh, inflicted on African Americans, and and often not by organized groups like the Klan, just uh, by their neighbors. Yes. You know, I think it's important to recognize because sometimes people, they push back or they question the use of terror, um, you know, when associated with black people. And what we know is that members of Congress at the time, progressive members of Congress at the time, described this as a reign of terror. Um, So they're very clear on that. And what you see is that, you know, there is this violence that is um, committed against newly freed people. And so it's as though someone flipped a switch. You know, while black people were held in bondage, enslavers, it didn't make practical sense for enslavers to just kill them all willy-nilly, right? But once those black people are released from bondage and they are free and they have access to citizenship rights, the quote-unquote value that ex-Confederates had placed in black people's lives changes. It sort of disappears. So they are more likely to deliberately target them for killing, for torture, for sexual assault, um, as they try to um, sort of resurrect or hold on to the realities of slavery. So the violence is absolutely a part of it. It is part of a larger freedom-denying enterprise. They can't force black people back to um, plantations. They can't stop black people from trying to make the most of freedom, reuniting their families, trying to vote and serve in office. But what they can do is to punish them for doing that, to punish them for their success. And they do that in a variety of ways. It is their employers, their neighbors, ordinary people they may interact with on a daily basis who may just physically attack them. But one of the other things they're also doing is targeting them in their homes in the middle of the night when they think they're going to be safe. And they're not prepared for what we would today recognize as a home invasion or a no-knock warrant. You know, no one is prepared for the kind of violence that they uh, face. And they're held hostage for hours at a time. And this is the sort of reality while they are punishing them for making the most of their freedom. So the violence is much more... it's much more graphic, it's much more disturbing, it's much more unthinkable and unspeakable than we've been taught. You know, we've been taught that, you know, like a Klan visit is just like the Klan coming and setting, a, um, you know, setting fire to a cross on your lawn. Uh, that's not what's happening during Reconstruction. The violence is much more extreme than mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And in the book, uh, you tell this story from the vantage point of individuals, individual families talk about some of those families and what they experience. Right. So I tell the book, I tell the story from the perspective of survivors. So these are people who endured attacks and they live to tell about it. And I can give one example. Um, one is a story of Edward Crosby. You know, he lives in Aberdeen, Mississippi. It's 1870. He's trying to vote and, you know, Get it. He's got his eyes set on the prize for land, and he believes that in order to protect all of his rights and ensure that he'll be, become a landowner, uh, that he has to vote. And his former enslaver, who's now his employer, says, you better not vote. And Edward initially says, okay, I won't vote. You know, I'm listening. You know, I hear you. But Edward, you know, he knows that if he doesn't go vote, then his um, possibilities of holding on to his freedom are going to be limited. So he goes to vote, and he's denied a ballot. 
And he goes to another polling place and he's denied and he's denied a ballot again. And all of the other black men who come to vote are also denied ballots. And so, you know, he goes from place to place and then he decides to go home. And then shortly thereafter, he steps out of his house in the middle of the night to get some water for his child. And he feels and hears the thunder of what turns out to be 30 armed white men on their horses bearing down on his home. And so Edward, knowing that they're coming for him and knowing that there's a good chance that they're going to kill him, he runs and hides in the smokehouse. And, you know, his wife, he thinks that they won't harm his wife. So his wife, you know, calmly tells the men, you know, he's not home. She doesn't know where he is. Um, And the men, they hang around for a bit and then they leave. And so Edward and his family, they get off lucky. No one is harmed in the attack. But he is forever terrified that they will come back. And so that's one kind of story. For a lot of families, they don't get off that easy. Yeah. Yeah. They're killed. They're in, killed. In many ways. Uh, I'm talking with Kanata Williams. She's a professor of history at Wayne State University. She researches African-Americans' experiences of racial and racist violence. She recently wrote a book called I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, uh, our listeners, during this conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what you know about the Reconstruction era, the era of that immediately came after the Civil War and after the Civil War amendments extend uh, the liberties of our Constitution to African Americans. Uh, Are there any stories that are particularly sort of profound to you during that era that you'd like to share that you remember learning about? Uh, Also, let us know what you know about the racial violence that took place Uh, in Reconstruction in the era right after the Civil War, the reaction of so many white Americans to the idea that black Americans would be equal under the law. Um, Also, if you've just got questions about uh, racial violence, the history of racial violence in America, about this era, about Reconstruction, uh, Kadada Williams is an expert uh, with us who can can really help you sort through all of those things. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can work you into uh, we can work you into the conversation that way. Um, when when you are telling these stories, uh, Kadada, for me, um, you know, it's impossible to read them and not sort of see things that I've seen in in you know uh, 2023 or in 2010 or in 2000. I mean, um, this idea of violence against African Americans is is part of America um, and the connection between then and now I think is something that's sometimes difficult for people to process maybe it's that they don't understand sometimes it's that they don't want to understand um, but but I want to spend a little time letting you draw those connections uh, draw the thread between, the Reconstruction era, and what we see today. I think it's important to acknowledge that we live in the future created by Reconstruction's overthrow and abandonment. So we can see the direct lines between the failure to um, enforce and recognize African Americans' right to be free, equal, and secure 
in this period, um, extended to the present day, when Black people are targeted in supermarkets, you know, when they are targeted in their churches. There, there are direct connections between that violence, the mindset of um, white supremacists and their investment in harming black people, in making sure that black people are only in a position for them to be exploited by white people, um, that the mindset continues, the mindset persists. And our denial, our refusal to grapple with the reality of recognizing African-Americans' rights to be free, equal, and secure um, is why we're targeted today on a regular basis and why people think that they can get away with it because historically they have been able to get away with it. If the government had sided more with African-Americans and their rights in that era, if, if there had been a pushback in favor of Reconstruction, do you think things would look different in America today? I think they could look different, but I know why I know why things don't look different. And part of it is because when we talk about government, we often talk about it in a way that doesn't really acknowledge that the government in the United States is made by the people and for the people, you know? And so those federal officials who don't enforce reconstruction the reconstruction amendments and the civil rights acts of the period are acting often at the behest of constituents who are not only in the South, they are in the North and West. Mm. And we have to sort of deal with the reality, particularly in a state like Michigan, you know, there's a tendency to try to think of Michiganders during this time period as all abolitionists, and they absolutely weren't. If they were, they could have played a role in destroying slavery before the Civil War actually began. But that's not who they were. And what we know is that the vast majority of them only begrudgingly accepted emancipation in order to quickly end the Civil War. And so a lot of them have, a lot of white Northerners and Westerners have, you know, their thoughts and feelings and concerns about what will follow slavery's destruction. I think the Cincinnati Inquirer, um, their editorial uh, board had like this really interesting quote, you know, that said, slavery is dead. The Negro is not. Mm. There is the misfortune. Mm. Right. And so that sort of gives you like a very, you know, it sort of helps clarify our understandings of what many white Northerners think and their concerns about emancipation. And that resistance to, that resistance to emancipation, um, that resistance to black people enjoying the same rights as white people is why those very constituents don't pressure the federal officials to do anything more to address the violence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Professor Kadada Williams of uh, Wayne State University, talking about her book, I Saw Death Coming. We'll also begin to get to you, our listeners, both on the phones and on social. Mark in Redford, Daniel and Peter in Detroit, Abigail and Berkeley. We'll start with you. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound 
of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. Our guest today is Kadana Williams. She's an associate professor at Wayne State University who researches African Americans' experiences with racial violence. She has a new book out called I Saw Death Coming. Uh, we're talking about uh, that book and the way it takes a look back at the Reconstruction era here in America and the violence that African-Americans faced during Reconstruction. I uh, want to hear from you as well during this conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and uh, hashtag Detroit Today and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, let's start today with Daniel in Detroit. Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Sure. You know, um, you know, your your show's about um, you know the the oppression of black people in America, and there's been a lot of talk about reparations and giving out money to people. You know, I, I feel like if we did reparations, it's not going to fix the problem. The problem is the the gap, right, between the the, the rich people and the poor people. And I really think that if, if we're talking about education, we're talking about housing, and we're talking about business ownership. So if we directed these reparations into zero-interest loans for black people, for first-time homebuyers only, though, if you've already owned a home, you're on your way to financial wealth, right? Because home wealth is created by a lot by real estate, a lot by education. So why don't we do what we did for the American Indians and give black people free education? The third thing would be uh, business ownership. You know, first-time business owners should get a zero-interest loan from the Small Business Administration. Let's not, if we give out free money to people, they're just going to buy new cars, and they're going to buy new jewelry, and they're going to buy new clothes. Let's right this wrong by changing the society. This would fix itself over a 20-year period. Mm. You would see the wealth gap between black and white close tremendously if we did this. So, Daniel, I really do appreciate the call and and the comments. One thing I'll say before I turn it back over to Donna Williams is be really careful about the way that you make assumptions about what black people would do uh, with money. Um, uh, in some ways, your doubt about our ability to figure that out on our own uh, and to make it work for the long term rather than the short term is a little like what we heard from whites in the South after the Civil War, saying that black people didn't know how to manage freedom, right? Uh, that we couldn't make those decisions for ourselves. And I know you don't intend uh, to, to be echoing that kind of uh, derision, but there there is this narrative in, in American history about uh, black people not knowing how to take care of ourselves. Uh, and it's false. Uh, and it's 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 dangerous. But there, but you also brought up a, a number of different things that I know uh, Kadada Williams will want to address about how reparations uh, might look. Well, I'll just say that reparations can mean a number of things. 
It yeah, could people mean, get stuck on the idea of money. Exactly. It's yeah. Not just uh, that. It's not just that. Um, because what black people wanted and want today is justice. They want to live in a just world. Um, and you can provide a financial payment and black people that wouldn't stop black people from being killed. Unarmed black people from being killed by police or black people being killed while in the supermarket or while they're in church. Right. So reparations could look like a variety of things. It could also look like better education, better history education, um, making sure that we learn this history and that we support young people in their efforts to try to build a more just world. That's a kind of reparations too, but no one seems to talk about that. Mm-hmm. No one seems to be interested in doing that kind of work. They get kind of wrapped around the axle of financial reparations. Um, and black people know what to do with money, right? Black people have had these things. And one of the reasons why they have often lost them is because of investments in white supremacy. But I rarely hear people who are wrapped or who are sort of really concerned about the financial aspect who are willing to sort of support the work that's needed to address the larger structural issues that black people face. Yeah. Yeah. And and to be fair, I mean, Daniel did talk about education and home ownership and business ownership, all of these things uh, that absolutely have uh, a lot to do with uh, with with real reparations, not just uh, not just monetary. Daniel, uh, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Peter in Detroit. Peter, what's on your mind? Well, you know, I was thinking about that. I've studied the under. Oh, Peter, uh, go ahead. We lost hello? you there for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay, fine. Now, there's great stories behind Michigan's Underground Road, but as Dr. Green uh, pointed out, you know, uh, everybody was an abolitionist here. There were a lot of great abolitionists, but black people didn't vote in Michigan, in uh, uh, or black men, anyway, until 1875 when, when they were voting in the South, with the exception of Cass County, and that only in uh, school board elections because... The only, the only people at the schools, largely in Cass County, were black people, so they let them vote for school board. Uh, I'm looking at something else, too. Is that I think we're in the midst of a new reconstruction, if you will. You know, after the election of, of Barack Obama, there has been this tremendous backlash of, of racism, which is how you get a president, Donald Trump. It's how you get somebody like Ron DeSantis, who wants to dismantle black history in Florida schools and Florida uh, uh, universities. Uh, you know, they, they don't, they're afraid of Toni Morrison books, you know, Nobel laureate being taught in, uh, uh, in schools where, where black and white people would, would be reading this stuff. We're in the midst of a new reconstruction in a way, I think. Mm. And I just wonder what what Dr. Green thinks about yeah. that season. It's uh, Dr. Williams, but yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I'm sorry. It's yeah. okay. Dr. Williams. <laughs> Go ahead, Kadana. So I think that, you know, I've seen like a number of historians who've been talking about the, quote, need for third reconstruction. Um, and whenever I hear that, I always ask, which part? Right? Mm. The revolutionary reforms? If so, if that's what you mean, yes, sign me up. Um, but what about the reactionary violence? Because that's absolutely a part that was a part of the first Reconstruction. It was the part of the second Reconstruction of the Civil Rights Movement. And even if we get the revolutionary reforms that we seek today, we have to be aware of the reality of, you know, a great possibility for that that sort of white backlash occurring again. 
And so the question we have to ask ourselves, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we address the reality of that white reactionary backlash? And we do see this in a variety of places. Um, you know, and some of it is targeting the education so you can't teach or you can't learn this kind of history, mm-hmm. the kind of history that would uh, inspire young people to build a more just world. I think that, you know, the education, the targeting education uh, is really strategic, but it's also really effective. We get the lost cause narrative become, you know, it becomes so popularized because, you know, groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy, they make sure that it's in the textbooks. Right. So they're being very strategic and deliberate. Um, And, you know, this targeting of black history today is designed, you know, it's a reaction to, you know, the George Floyd killing and the sort of black spring uprisings that we see after that. And more and more Americans sort of thinking about and invested in building a more just world. And so rather than allow that to happen, they want to make sure that young people don't know about it. Because, you know, if you think about it, you know, it tells us that they know their children. They know their children might be open to justice. They know their children might be willing to build a better world. And they want to make sure that they don't do that. And the way they do that is to make sure they don't have access to a history that could teach them something about building a better world, making sure the nation lives up to its promises. Yeah. I mean, I've been really disappointed um, since Barack Obama left office by uh the, the the scope and breadth of the backlash. I mean, I I, I remember writing a column when um, when Obama was elected or looked like he was going to be elected, fretting about uh, the, the 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 coming backlash that that this was a great milestone to achieve in this country, but that I worried that people would be resentful uh, of it, um, and, and I could not have imagined uh, to the extent to which that would be true. It does raise these questions about, um, you know, the viability of an America that is as pluralistic as the one we have right now, right? Um, uh, you know, this this fight in Florida over curriculum, the the, the national assault on on the idea of um, critical race theory. It, it suggests that we can't reach even. Uh, common ground on what to talk about or how to talk about these things. And I wonder as a historian and somebody who's, you know, unapologetic about talking about these things and insisting that we do, what, what's your take on, again, the viability of all of this? Are we really coming apart, I think, is one of the questions that runs through my mind. I think that to a degree we are, but I also look to the past. Right. Uh, For an example of lessons we might gain from this um, or lessons we might gain from the past about what to do about what's happening in the present day. And what inspires me, even from a history of reconstruction, um, is the fact that there is a sense there are people in the country, there are people who will fight for justice. And part of it is finding enough of them to do the work. We wouldn't have had the revolutionary reforms that we did if there hadn't been a large coalition of black and white people who believed in justice. We wouldn't have had that with the civil rights era if you didn't have a larger coalition. And so I think that there are people in the United States who 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 are who do believe in justice. 
uh, who do believe in democracy, who want to help the nation live up to its promises. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes we get distracted or we get a little naive about the reality of the, the, the opposition, the people that we are encountering. And I don't think that we have the luxury as a black person and as a black historian, I don't have the luxury of denial yeah. about, you know, what, you know, people who are invested in white supremacy have in mind for me and have in mind for the nation. And so that inspires, or I should say that informs the actions I take in terms of teaching the history, in terms of forming coalitions with other people. I actually do believe in justice, but I also know that it's going to be a struggle and it's going to be a long, hard struggle to come back from this moment that we're in and we're not even through. We haven't even seen where we're going with it yet, Um, much less to be able to sort of completely turn it over. Um, But that's the work ahead of us. And I believe and I believe in us. Right. I believe that there are enough of us. uh, You know, we just have to sort of pull ourselves together and come out of the denial. So for the piece you wrote, I wonder how much denial you got, you know, in terms of pushback and people saying, no, that couldn't happen. That's not who we are. What I was told was not to predict what was going to happen. They said, how could you know what will happen uh, when he leaves office? And I said, well, I don't, but I know history. And I know what's happened in the past yeah. when we've seen black progress, that uh, there is a backlash. Uh, and, well, I mean, I didn't want to be right, but, but boy, I'd, I didn't imagine how right, uh, how right I might be. Right. Uh, Peter, again, thanks again for the, the call and the comments. Let's go to Trina in Detroit. Trina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. Yeah, I'm Trina Shanks. I'm a professor at University of Michigan. I've studied the Homestead Act and just the desire people had for land. And the one thought I had when you talk about people fighting for justice, when Ida B. Wells started her life, she wanted to be a teacher, she wanted to have a normal life, she wanted to be married. And one of her biographies said that many of her friends who were starting businesses were the ones who were lynched. And so her story wasn't just that there was lynching, but it was often in response to black progress, mm-hmm. to black wealth. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered what your, your speaker, Dr. Williams, has to say about it's not just random people who are killed, but people who are actually being successful in their freedom and building wealth, and then they were the ones that were attacked and killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Trina, I really appreciate you making making that point. Kanata, we were talking about the the communities that black people were building after Reconstruction and the economic uh, basis they they were building, right? The foundation that they were trying to shore up so that they could have, uh, you know, uh, economic success. That was a driver of the violence. Exactly. And the vast majority of people who were targeted were people who were very successful. You know, um, I've got like the story of Abe and Eliza Lyon. They, you know, come out of slavery. Abe is a blacksmith. So he is enslaved one day and he hangs a shingle, making his own business the next. And, you know, within five years, they have saved $600, which is worth about $200,000 today. Mm-hmm. Right. So they have saved and they are targeted. And in you know, the raid on their home, Abe is killed. Now, Abe hasn't done anything. He's voting. He's minding his business. But what starts to happen is that, you know, some of the white people in his community start to comment on how successful his business is. Right. And so that becomes a means to target them. What we see from white supremacists is a desire to tear down everything black people build. And so the people they target, you know, you know, that informs the people they target, those who manage to not only vote, but serve in office, who acquire land, who have their own businesses, those who open schools, those who open churches. 
right? So there's a deliberate targeting of black people's success in freedom. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear a little about the research that uh, Professor Williams did for this book and how difficult it is to do research about this era when you're looking for information about and from African Americans. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Mark and Redford, Pat in Birmingham, Abigail and Berkeley, Gary and Hamtramck. We will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag us as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit today. WDETM Stephen Henderson and our guest is Kadana Williams. She's an associate professor at Wayne State University. She researches African Americans' experiences with racial violence. She recently wrote the book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. Uh, Kadana, before we go back to, to listeners, I, I do want to talk about the research you did for this book. Uh, and I've mentioned several times how detailed the stories are and and how detailed they are from an African-American uh, perspective, narratives about African-Americans at that time. I'm not sure most people know how difficult it is to put those kinds of things together partially because of the backlash against uh, Reconstruction and and black progress. It wasn't just that these things stopped. It's that there was a tremendous effort to bury a lot of the info and data about uh, what happened during that time. And that makes it harder for people like you in this era to really get back and, and be able to piece all of this together. Right. I think one of the things, like, it's actually easier to find the material than people think. And that's because black people risk their lives to, um, save it. to, sa- you know, to save it, you know, to make sure that their stories were told, that people heard it, that the right people heard it, uh, who recorded it. Uh, so we've got like, we actually have a lot of documentation. The challenge is that historians examining these records have been really selective about like how they engage black people's testimonies. And part of it is often like to establish the fact of violence, mm. right? So we know that election violence occurred in part from the testimonies, but what they've missed are the sort of deeper stories about who's being targeted and why and how and what happens during attacks and the sort of injustice that families can't get over having survived them. So the records are there because black people made a point to make sure they were there. They also, for several generations, passed those stories down through their families. So their families were able to hold on to it, hold on to those stories for as long as the people who lived during attacks lived. But then over time, those stories faded from memory um, but the records are still there. So they're there and they're waiting for us to sort of like examine them and pay close attention to them mm-hmm. um, in a way that we might not necessarily think. There is even like a lot of literature produced, poetry that sort of in, in short stories that engage this history, folk tales and more. 
So there's a there's a sort of wide um, and expansive body of sources for us to uh, look at to understand this history. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you are when you're going through this material, though, I'm also curious about kind of the emotional state that uh, you're in. I I know f- from looking into my own family past, it, it it can be really overwhelming when you find things that either confirm uh, things that you thought you knew or, in some cases, um, really overturn the, the notions, the very notions of who you are. Right. You know, for me, it's because I love black people. I love black history. <laughs> um, you know, I try when I go into the records to, you know, do them justice by putting aside my own sort of reaction, I'm trying to understand what do they want me to know about who they were in this moment and what they lived through. Um, And then I take a moment to process what I'm learning because, you know, this can be a hard history. You know, I love James Baldwin's statement that, you know, the history is more beautiful and more terrible than anything you can imagine. Mm. And so in order to fully appreciate the history, you have to be able to balance both. You know, even with all of the, you know, horrors that African-Americans experienced in slavery and then in the war on their freedom afterwards, they still fought to build a world where you and I can be here. Right. And so I feel, you know, for some people, there's a desire to turn away from this history. You know, you've got some young people say, I don't want any more hard histories. Don't give me any bad (laughs) stories. Um, But I think we dishonor our ancestors by doing that. Um, I think we do them justice by making sure their stories are known and that we build the world that they were trying to build for us. You know, they built a world or they fought to build a world they didn't live to see. Right. right. But they had faith in us. Yeah, they did. They absolutely did. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. I want to read a couple of social media comments before we go back to phones. Naeem on Twitter says, The history of Reconstruction is painful yet critical for all Americans to know. Black people are blamed for injustices we experience. Our circumstance of poverty, violence, low academic performance, etc. Are legacies of a government that never genuinely served or protected us. Zoe on Twitter says, definitely putting this on my reading list. I grew up in Alabama and remember a whole lot of talk about northern, quote, carpetbaggers coming down south and doing unpopular things, but not much else. My education on this era is sorely lacking. Uh, let's go next to Mark in Redford. Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. I'm so pleased that you have your guest up. Uh, Professor Williams, I know of her at the Wayne State History Department, and she has many colleagues there, such as uh, Professor Kruman, that talks about citizenship and Mark Kruman, uh, and, yep. and related topics as well. But my question for her is: um, I wonder if she drew any inspiration from uh, the author Isabel Wilkerson. She wrote um, mm-hmm. "Warmth of Other Sons," and she did a lot of oral history uh, research and spoke with um, survivors of the Great Migration mm-hmm, mm-hmm. up north here. Had she drawn the ins- inspiration from that? Uh, great question. I, I, I will say before I have Kadada answer that uh, Isabel is one of my great uh, academic and intellectual heroes and 
Um, I would love for her to come on the show and talk about uh, talk about her work. Uh, what about you, Kadana? Well, I love her work as well. Um, and so I think I would have been inspired by the story she told, but because I was interested in a much earlier period, um, I wanted the testimonies of people who lived at that time. You know, this was more than 150 years ago. Um, and many of the families uh, whose stories I tell in the book, uh, their descendants may not know that this is part of their story. Um, and so I was really interested in getting into those testimonies because I believe that um, those people, they, have, they had something to teach us about this moment and this era. And so, yes, I'm very familiar with her work. Um, I see her as a, you know, a kind of role model for storytelling. Um, and I, I hope I do like the kind of work she does justice by the way I tell the stories I do in my book. Yeah. Yeah. She's got this wonderful narrative style that, that I can see echoes of. Uh, and I saw a death coming as well. So uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Um, let's go to Mary in Beverly Hills. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for having me and thank you for all the work you do. Um, I admire your show and your work. Thank you. I, uh, I think that it took uh, this country a long time to abolish slavery, and there were a lot of people that did things um, to before the government caught up with us doing the right thing. So as far as the reparations go, I'm a Caucasian and privileged, so... On a personal level and in my life, I try to do things um, to level the playing field, mm. per se, So, uh, because I'm not waiting for the government to do the right thing, even though hopefully they will. Yeah. But, uh, um, Mary, I don't want to so, cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. I, I want to give Kadana Williams a chance to react to that, though. Thank you very much for the call. But this idea of it's on us, not on the government, very important. Yes, absolutely. And we need more people like Mary, right? Uh, I think, you know, when I was talking earlier about coalitions and partnerships, about building a more just world, I don't only mean elected officials. Uh, You know, that work, the work that we need done needs to be done not only in state houses, but, you know, in coffee houses, right? Uh, At, you know, Thanksgiving dinner tables, Mm. you know, having these sort of hard conversations, these honest conversations about the world we need to build are what we need right now. But we need more than talk. We need action. Uh, And sometimes that action is in the form of talking and persuading people to sort of join us in this fight for justice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kanata Williams, it is always great to see you. It's always great to talk to you. I'm really, really uh, glad you could join us to talk about this wonderful New work of yours. I saw death coming. Thanks so much. For Thank you us. for having me. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to be talking about how America is doing on its pandemic preparedness and talk with someone who has personally struggled with long-haul COVID systems. Also, if you like this show and enjoy listening to the program in general, share it with your friends, with your relatives, maybe even with your frenemies. You can find it on WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast wherever you download podcast. Trust me, sharing this really helps our show. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.